Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 320th episode of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting right across the world this week from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, just up from where Hollywood Boulevard's actually closed off for the world premiere of the new Star Wars movie. These people have been camped out for four or five days. I don't quite understand that, but there's a whole stack of people with their tents and barbecues and beds and settees and God, I don't know. Um, they can go and see the movie in a week without any problem. So I guess there's an attraction to being there the first night. Now, social media firms like Facebook and Twitter could face fines of up to $30 million if they fail to tackle cyberbullying on their platforms. Now, this is happening in the UK. The digital minister in the UK reportedly announced new powers on Sunday that will force some of America's biggest tech companies to make their platforms age appropriate. Under the reforms, tech firms will reportedly have to ensure that children's accounts have the highest possible privacy settings as default. This statutory code will require tailored protections to be built into websites and apps for everybody under 16. Now, we all want rules in place so that children can be safe and protected online. And uh, if you're in the States, there's been a lot of documented information over the past couple of days about bullying. So um, I think it's a good thing. It's likely that all other platforms such as YouTube and Instagram and the rest will all be impacted by the new laws. So... I think that's a good thing. I hope that they follow it here in the US and in Australia and England and Germany and everywhere else that this radio program is being heard. Now, you've no doubt heard about the Uber hack of 57 million Uber customers and Uber didn't report it for over a year. Well, it turns out that the Uber hacker... They finally found out who it is. He's a 20-year-old Florida man who lived with his mother. And this 20-year-old was responsible for the theft of 57 million passengers and 600,000 drivers' information. And he was paid by Uber to destroy the data through a so-called bug bounty program. Uber paid the hacker... $100,000 to destroy the information. I wonder if he's moved out of his mum's house. But the company did not reveal any further information about the hacker or how it paid him the money. Uber made the payment through a program designed to reward security researchers who who report flaws in a company's software. So Uber's, Uber's bug bounty service as such a program is known in the industry, is hosted by a company called Hacker One, which offers a platform to a number of tech companies. So the idea is that if hackers can get into a company and find a fault, then they get rewarded for it. And that seems to be what's happened in this case, although the amount seems to be pretty excessive for normal practice. Now, newly appointed Uber Chief Executive Dara Koshrashahari I don't know how whether that's pretty close to a pronounce how you pronounce it or not. He fired two of Uber's top security officials when he announced the breach last month, saying the incident should have been disclosed to regulators at the time it was discovered over a year before. Now it still remains unclear who made the final decision to authorise the payment to the hacker and to keep the breach secret. Although the uh, sources say that then CEO Travis Kalanick was aware of the breach and the bug bounty payment in November of last year. Now, a payment of $100,000 through a bug bounty program is unusual. And 
it would represent a record payment for identifying such a breach. Security professionals said rewarding a hacker who had stolen data would also be well outside the normal rules of a bounty program where payments are usually up to $10,000. So normally they pay people to hack in and if they hack in, they report it and get paid. This guy hacked in, stole a whole bunch of information, came to them for money and they paid him $100,000. Hmm. Hacker one hosts to Uber's bug bounty program but doesn't manage it and plays no role in deciding whether payments are appropriate or how large they should be. Hacker One said in all cases where a bug bounty award is processed through them, they receive identifying information of the recipient in the form of an IRS form before payment of the award can be made. Now, Uber made the payment to confirm the hacker's identity and have him sign a non-disclosure agreement to deter further wrongdoings. So here's $100,000, tut tut, don't do it again. Okay, I won't. Right, what's to help him? What's to stop him working with somebody else? Uber also conducted a forensic analysis of the hacker's machine to make sure that the data had been purged. So that's all and well, people didn't actually lose their information. Now, the hacker was living with his mum in a small house trying to help pay the bills adding that members of Uber's security team did not want to p pursue prosecution of an individual who did not appear to pose a further threat. I guess I can understand that. $100,000 isn't that much money to an Uber, I don't suppose. The Florida hacker paid a second person for services that involved accessing GitHub, and that's a site widely used by programmers to store their code. And he used GitHub to obtain credentials for access to Uber data stored elsewhere. GitHub said the attack did not involve a failure of its security systems. So how come you can access GitHub to get data's credentials for data stored elsewhere? Doesn't make any sense. Uber received an email last year from an anonymous person demanding money in exchange for user data and the message was forwarded to the company's bug bounty team in what was described as a routine practice for such solicitations. Big bug bounty programs are designed mainly to give security researchers an incentive to report weaknesses that they uncover in a company's software. But very complicated scenarios can emerge when dealing with hackers who obtain information illegally or seek a ransom. Some companies choose not to report more aggressive intrusions to authorities on the grounds that it can be easier and more effective to negotiate directly with the hackers in order to limit any harm to customers. All that makes sense too, so I'm not sure who's in the wrong here. Uber, who keep, kept it secret, or Uber, who went out and did a deal with the hacker, had the information destroyed so that no information leaked. I don't know. I think I'd go for, I think I'd do exactly what Uber did. Now, do you get my 30, daily 30-second 30 read business newsletter? Every day. It comes to you. It's about 400 words. You can read it in about 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and uh, goes out every day. And we've now got about 1.7 million daily subscribers. And every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, and blockchain. You find out a hell of a lot of information way before it becomes general knowledge. We, um, we were talking about um, Bitcoin five years ago, five and a half years ago. So, you know, you want to um, listen to this program and you want to read the newsletter every day because we are way ahead of the curve. And next week I'm going to talk to you about a couple of other fantastic cryptocurrencies that are cheap to get into or inexpensive to get into 
and can make you one hell of a lot of money. It's free, the newsletter that is, and the information is invaluable. Now, there's a hell of a lot of companies that um, forward newsletters that pertain to their industry to all of their staff as an education tool. There's a lot of people enroll daily. Every day we get more and more and more people enrolling for the newsletter because if you read it and you use the information, you can do extremely well. So thank you. I really appreciate it. And if you don't get it, go to my website, bobpritchard.com and enroll. Now, my daily newsletter and on this radio program, we love entrepreneurs, particularly our young entrepreneurs. Well, how about a 13-year-old who came second at the Global Entrepreneurship Summit in India? You know, we're all about entrepreneurship and promoting both new ideas and the extraordinary people who create them. And that's particularly so for our young entrepreneurs. Now, at the um, summit in India, Ivanka Trump dominated most of the headlines. But at age 13, Hamish Finlayson, who is the youngest entrepreneur at this summit, is creating one hell of a buzz. The summit, now in its eighth year, is being held in South Asia. The fast-growing tech city of Hyderabad is hosting more than 1,500 entrepreneurs and investors from 150 countries around the world. And young 13-year-old Finlayson is becoming one of its most famous guests. He wanted to use technology to solve real-life problems, so he decided to do a presentation about litter called Litterbug Smash. He entered the app into a competition against 7,000 others. So 7,000 others. He's 13. And he made the final cut to pinch his idea. He ended up coming in second in the competition. So a 13-year-old up against 7,000 others, most of whom were adults, and he came second. Now, following on from Litterbug Smash was Nerdles versus Turtles, which focuses on the fact that 15.2 tonnes of plastic rubbish enters our oceans every day. Another game that's designed to save sea turtles and protect the sea. So now Hamish, don't forget he's 13, has five apps which have been downloaded in 54 countries by more than 10,000 people. But most personal app is his latest one, which was inspired by his own life. You see, Hamish is autistic, and his app, Triple T and ASD, raises awareness of autism. Hamish points out that 1% of the population live with autism, and that's about 74 million people. He says people can't understand autism and so people mistreat those that do have it. And Hamish's app is designed to help people better understand it. His app is attracting great community and social media feedback. But Hamish is not prepared to monetize it just yet. For now, it's more about raising awareness and breaking barriers about the disease. Hamish gets crowdfunding and grants to develop his apps. And he also recently got $40,000 from Facebook for a program that he took part in at last year's summit in Silicon Valley. For now, he's focused on a new virtual reality tool. He says he wants to study virtual technology and acting at university. So his new game is going to help kids cross the road. Hamish says transportation is a leading cause of injury in kids and teens and he wants to help change that with a bit of fun along the way. Now, bearing in mind, he's 13, and his motto is homework comes first and saving the world comes second. That's interesting. But uh, Hamish, 13 years old, good on you. Well done. We need to have a lot more like you, and we need to have a lot more people like Facebook who encourage young entrepreneurs. Now, my guest today is Dr. Alan Frankel. 
He graduated second in his class from the UCLA School of Medicine and was elected to the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honors Society. And after a distinguished career in traditional medicine, Ellen Frankel is one of the world's leading authorities on cannabis medicine. And uh, Dr. Frankel applies his knowledge on all aspects of the cannabis plant and its therapeutic value to the treatment of multiple serious medical conditions with cannabis. And I'll be back with my friend Alan Frankel after this short break on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, coming to you worldwide from Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the past five and a half, nearly six years, we've given you insights into the lives of somewhere around 320 of the world's most interesting business people. We talk about what they do, and uh, the challenges that they faced, what makes them special, and we also try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to have a successful business these days and to do something unusual. So people who have gone before us and have made a success of it, well, we need to listen to them because otherwise we'll end up making the same mistakes that they did and uh, that makes your road to success just that little bit harder. So the aim of this segment is to assist you to overcome challenges, to seize initiatives and to become highly successful. So if you're sitting at home listening to this, then pay attention because a hell of a lot of really good information comes out of this segment. My guest today is Dr. Alan Frankel. He graduated second in his class from the UCLA School of Medicine and was elected to the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honors Society. And for three years, Dr. Frankel was selected by his peers of one of LA Magazine's top internists. He was a clinical professor at the University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine for 18 years. The Chartscape medical software program used by the UCLA Bauer Cancer Center and the eScript medical software utilized by Kaiser Permanente were both developed by Dr. Frankel. After a distinguished career in traditional medicine, now this is where it gets really interesting. Alan Frankel is one of the world's leading authorities on dosed cannabis medicine. Now with 35 years of experience in internal medicine, Dr. Frankel implies his knowledge of all aspects of the cannabis plant and its therapeutic value to the treatment of multiple serious medical conditions. Now, it's about here that I've got to say, uh, Alan is my doctor, and uh, I'm um, taking marijuana tablets, and so far, they are working extremely well, and it enabled me to get off a couple of regular drugs that I take that... um, if you listen to the television commercials, against them are pretty nasty and cause all sorts of problems. So so that's all good. Alan, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard right around the world. 
Well, thank you. It's great being on your show. How I can't wait you? to smile off my face. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm excited. But for today, then I start a busy day with patients right at 10 o'clock. All right. Okay. We'll get on with it. Um, it's, it's really confusing to me. Um, it's not as confusing as it was, but the difference between medical marijuana, the marijuana that people sit around and smoke, and um, hemp. The, when you walk along Venice Boulevard, there's 20 shops selling marijuana if you've got anything more than a cold, and you see all these groups of people sitting around the outside these shops smoking joints. <laughs> they should be the healthiest people on the planet, but they don't look like it. So what's the di- – can you just quickly explain the difference between the three things or more if, it, if there's more? Well, uh, first let's differentiate between hemp-based CBD and cannabis-based CBD. Right. Um, although these plants are in the same genus of plants – they're very, very, very different plants. And theoretically, some still think they're in the same species, but I found it very hard to breed these plants. And at the end of the day, the fiber plant, the hemp plant, was meant for fiber use and making paper, um, you know, a million goods, fuel, food, and it does have about 1.5% CBD. But it's also missing the... Uh, first, decent cannabis plants have about 15%, but the big difference is the entourage effect. Cannabis has hundreds of other cannabinoids, minor cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, plant waxes, and a bunch more, um, and hemp doesn't. So um, you just can't make the same medicine um, out of hemp as you can out of cannabis. And we've done many, many, many small trials with 20 patients at a time where we blind them. They don't know whether they're getting hemp-based CBD or cannabis-based CBD at the same concentration. And there's nobody who feels it's the same. It's, um, we need to grow more hemp to be used for the right purposes, and we need to grow more cannabis for the right purposes. Right. Now, I've got the impression that most medical doctors are not enthusiastic about prescribing marijuana. Um, that might be wrong, but seems to be it's my impression so is that because doctors really don't believe it or is it because the um big drug companies are so far into their pocket that they brainwashed well i think it's some of both um there is a lot of doctors i mean there's a decent number of doctors who are comfortable writing the recommendation to the license for the medical cannabis but they won't go into any details about dosing because 21 years ago in a condom decision in, the, I believe, the Ninth Federal Circuit, um, it became illegal for doctors to give dosing information. Right. Um, so that scared a lot of doctors. To me, it seems so silly. I found out about that in 2006, and I just couldn't then, and I can't now, believe that they're going to come and arrest a doctor for giving dosing information and call it aiding and abetting. Um, but doctors also have just a fear of having anything to do with it, even giving somebody the recommendation. Um, I mean, I got into a number of issues with the medical board. I mean, the medical board, I feel like, is, is changing, and the mainstream doctor view is changing, but there's still a number of doctors out there that um, are terrified of it, and they right. don't believe it has any medical value. I, mean, I don't think they've read an article on it, but um, it, it's, come, it's changing, and at least in the community that I work in, in Southern California, the overwhelming majority of my patients come from physicians. Um, now, sometimes it's not the physician's idea, it's a patient's idea, and they ask the doctor, and they said, yeah, go see Alan. Um, but I'm definitely my main work is in the, med- in the main medical community. That's where I want to stay. Do um, When you say doctors are not allowed to prescribe doses, is that just for marijuana or because they prescribe doses of everything every day, don't they? Yeah, well, it makes no sense. I mean, but when you think about 21 years ago when this law was written about dosing, what was there to eat? I mean, there was weed and there were some undosed edibles 
And there was no way, in my opinion, to have medical cannabis under those circumstances. Right. I, know, I know some will disagree with this, but to me, medical cannabis is when you as a patient, me as a doctor, and the dispensing um, store all know how many milligrams of cannabinoids you're taking. That's what's necessary to do it medically because otherwise it's not that I'm not saying people can't get better and feel better by smoking or taking edibles but as far as using a doctor to be involved with it what's the point if you don't know what you're taking what can the doctor really say sure so after having a distinguished career as a medical professional and a very successful one how did you get started in the cannabis industry, you wake up at two o'clock one morning and go, aha, I've seen the light. I'm going to become a marijuana specialist. How'd that come about? Well, I woke up about two in the morning and I couldn't breathe. And this was 1999. And I went, I was just getting over, I thought, of bronchitis. And I went to my friend who was a pulmonary doctor and he said, you're in heart failure. So he walked me over to the heart doctor and I had a viral congestive heart failure, cardiomyopathy, and ended up with a bunch of heart biopsies. I was given a fairly short time to live, but I just didn't want to consider a, a transplant, and um, I was very depressed. I mean, 49, my kids were grown, but still, that's too early. But, but I just didn't want to do a transplant. And then some friends of mine came over and did a reverse um, intervention. I had, believe it or not, never used cannabis until I was 49 and I got sick. Um, and three months later, my echocardiogram and everything was completely normal. Now, I'm not saying that the cannabis fit my heart. I don't know what role it played. But I do know that it made me feel a whole lot better. And it turned on my brain again. And I started reading literally thousands of articles in the National Library of Medicine. And I became sold. And I, when I first started my practice 11 years ago, I thought it was going to be much more sophisticated with some dose medicines back then. But I mean, we really didn't know anything. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you made it because if you hadn't made it, I'd still be on those crappy drugs. <laughs> well, this is all, <laughs> it's all about you, Bob. <laughs> why, why do you recommend whole plant cannabis medicines versus hemp or laboratory-made medicines. Is that simply because of the – well, I think you explained it before that it's a totally different ball game. but um, how do you determine what to recommend? Well, as far as how to make the medicine out of the plant, um, I use nature's recipe and just keep all the molecules that are in the plant oil to begin with. I mean, I think it's fairly pompous for me to think that I know better than the last – tens of thousands of years on exactly which molecules are important. And every year that goes by, we learn more about the hundreds of terpenes and flavonoids. I mean, yes, it makes it more tasty and more aromatic, but these all have tremendous medical value. And to me, the better we get at extracts, and the, the more the extracts smell like cannabis, the better we've done. Um, and ideally, if we do an extraction on a particular strain, let's say an OG Kush, which has a, a scent that a lot of people recognize, the extract should smell like OG Kush. Um, and not because it, oh, that's cool, but because it should have the same medical values. When I um, came in for my consultation, you, you um, created or had a special um, combination of, of cannabis for me. How, how do you decide what dosage should be for what type of um, ailment? How do, you, how do you make that decision? Well, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a guess. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's like everything else in medicine – of course, part of it is at the end of the day, I think this. But I've been doing dosing for eight years. Um, and for a number of years, I would have people bring in their extracts and I would watch them dose because it's not legal for me to dose them. And I would mark down the dosage and the response and the, the caretaker would take the person home. And we followed up and we did 
hundreds and hundreds of patients like that. And then finally, about eight years ago, seven and a half years ago, we had enough CBD strains um, and with enough ratios, enough different terpene profiles that we started having a whole formulary. And as I continued to practice, if I felt we needed, or if I thought we needed a different extract with a different group of molecules, maybe extracted in a different way, I've been really lucky to be able to work with some collectives that I can say, make this and tell your, chem your chemist to call me. I speak to the chemist. They make it. I take a look at it. And then we see what it's useful for. I mean, there are a number of times we've made extracts. Um, long before THCA became a popular deal, we were making the extracts and trying them on people. Um, so that's how we learn. So do you have... Uh, is it sort of a collective of people who specialize in the mar medical marijuana that all compare notes? And is it like the medical profession where all this research goes in everywhere and everybody compares notes? I would have to say there's a little bit of that starting, but very little. There's a lot of the, the medical or the cannabis business is a complicated business and people... Uh, money becomes a very big deal very quickly, so people don't want to share information. Doctors have, uh, are very much avoid dosing. I mean, right. I do feel at times lonely. I would love to have that type of camaraderie with other doctors, and I have a little bit of it, right. but it's just starting. And doctors are going to have to believe somehow, and I'm not sure how our government's going to reassure anybody about cannabis right now, but just reassure that yeah, you can dose. And right. I mean, when I think about being arrested and then the jury saying, wait, this doctor didn't give any dosing information. That's why he's being, you know, punished. No, no, he gave lots of dosing information and can't do that. Right. Um, what I liked about coming to see you is that um, you spent an hour, uh, I mean, a full hour listening to what my symptoms were, et cetera, et cetera, before you made any suggestions whatsoever. And usually if you go to a doctor, you know, you get 10 minutes and they throw a bunch of pills at you, give you a couple of samples and go away and come back in three months. You've got a totally different type of um, uh, practice. So how do, you, how do you not succumb to the greed that most doctors seem to succumb to? I, you know, I, I don't know why money has never been, that's why I don't have very much. Um, it's never been number one, two, or three. I mean, when I had my children were young, obviously I need, needed to make more money. Yeah. Um, but it was never my number one. I mean, my number one was, well, other than being a dad and now being a, my sixth grandchild is on the way, by the way. Oh, good. Congratulations. So, so awesome. <laughs> But I've always loved practicing medicine, and I think uh, if you end up as a doctor and you are truly very, very empathetic, and I'm not saying that's a blessing, that's a blessing and a curse, right. then you're kind of forced to either be miserable and have your patients be miserable, which mostly they are, or you have a good time with it. And Voltaire in 1732 stated, the art of medicine consists in amusing your patient while nature cures them. I believe that. And I, you know, I think as doctors, we help manage people. But, I mean, did I cure you with this? No. But if you're feeling better and you're on less medications, I would consider that a success. Right. Um, when I walk along the promenade at Venice Beach, apart from being amused, there's a couple of dozen marijuana dispensaries with big signs saying, if you've got any one of these 500 things wrong with you, everything from a cough to an ingrown toenail, come in here, we'll give you a marijuana card and you'll be cured instantly. Is that is that really all hype and marketing bullshit or is it really a wonder drug? Well, okay, the re I sometimes get embarrassed when talking to patients or giving talks and go down the list of all the things this does and it seems it does seem too good to be true except if you look upon it as critical nutrition right and i think these molecules are critical nutrition for us and just like scurvy coming across or pellagra or 
Barry Barry, all these other nutritional deficiencies in populations over history, there are tons of very, very sick populations throughout history just because either a piece of an orange or some other or thiamine or B6, I mean, the, then CBD and all these other cannabinoids might be essential nutrition. I think they are. So are you saying that most things that are wrong, that go wrong with people, um, I, I get internally not a broken leg or something, but most things that go wrong with people are all linked back some way to nutrition? Well, broken leg is actually linked to nutrition, not just through vitamin D and calcium, but also CBD um, increases the speed of a healed fracture by 30%. Um, so even with a broken leg, the nutrition is important. I mean, do I think there's cures for everything in nature? You know, I'd have to say I don't know, but I suspect there's a lot, lot more than we we're ever taught. And we know things are being destroyed in the Amazon, and I don't think things would be destroyed if, if it was all useless. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I have become a plant medicine doctor. It doesn't mean I never write a prescription or never prescribe a pill, but it doesn't happen that often. Right. So, why is it that um, the medical profession, it, in in the main, and the government are so seem to be so anti um, medicinal cannabis? Well, I would take those two groups separately. The government feels the way it does because they want it for themselves. I mean, the, the number of cannabis drugs that are coming out and new drugs that will be released. The U.S. federal government has well over 500 patents on cannabis. And sometimes when I want to find a way to do something, I just type into Google, U.S. federal patent cannabis on blah, blah, blah. Right. And you take that blah, 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 and search for it, find out what, if you can get it retail, and all of a sudden you've got a part of a future patent without violating a patent. Right. Um, so the, the money is 90% of the reason the government is against this, because they want it for themselves, period. And that's why they're actually much more supportive of recreational cannabis than medical. I mean, look what happens in Washington, Oregon, Colorado. Um, as soon as recreational is there, medical dies. And the reason is, it's in large part, I think, doctor's fault. If you don't have a doctor that's pushing the maintenance of medical cannabis, it just goes back to recreational where it was before all of this started, except it's legal. Um, now, doctors are mostly just fearful of losing their license. Um, there is fear about, I mean, when I first started 11 years ago, the stuff I got, I heard from doctors that liked me. I'm not, I'm not talking about the ones that might not like me, but that liked me and respected me, that you, what are you doing wasting your life? Right. You're wasting your life, and you're going to get in trouble. You know. So you have to decide... If you want to push the envelope, um, I think it, you have to be somebody that can be scared. I mean, there was plenty of times, I mean, I was scared or didn't sleep or still, if I hear a siren, I think it's something else. So, I mean, there was a lot of, I had well over 20 undercover cops. So it's fear, but you have to be willing to live with that fear. Um, I think I was lucky that my kids were grown. I was a little bit older. Um, I don't even have a girlfriend, so there's nobody to tell me what not to do. So, I mean, there's several doctors that I've hired, I haven't hired, I've interviewed, that I need, by the way, if there's a good primary care doctor out there, I'm looking for another doc. Okay. But they're interested in it, but then their spouse says, well, you crazy? You have two young kids. And I get that. I mean, so I, I think the doctors have the fear and the government has the greed. Is this... Um this is going to change. Well, let's go back to the comment about where they've legalised recreational marijuana. That um, medical marijuana uses it as declined. It, is that because people think that because they can smoke pot, that's going to um, solve their problems without getting more accurate prescription? Whatever. People don't know. People just don't know. I mean, um, nationally or even in Los Angeles County. 15% of people use cannabis on some regular basis. That means 85% don't. 
So, and the majority of people have tried cannabis at least once in their life, but it was a bad experience. It was high THC. People, most people don't want to smoke. They don't want to get stoned. And people, if once people truly understand that they could take a capsule that's dosed, or you could take, you have taken a capsule. Yeah. And I know, I, I can't remember exactly what I gave you, but I, we couldn't rely, you know, be public on it, but I know exactly what you're taking. Um, and when you're taking it, and if you're not better, there's a good chance I'd be able to talk to you and make a suggestion to make it better. Right. Because I've just done this enough. Doctors are just too scared, and they, they the vast what has the vast majority of cannabis doctors been doing? They've just been writing recommendations for forty dollars, and that's been that. There certainly are some very qualified um, cannabis doctors in the state. Um, but very little dosing, and it's a very small number of cannabis doctors. And it also has to be a cannabis doctor who's willing to, you know, bump up on stuff. Well, if um, you know, we see specials on CNN and whatever about how cannabis has worked for all sorts of conditions and. Um, you know, stopping seizures and all those sorts of things. So there must be a fairly strong movement, even if it's sort of an underground movement, to get governments and other doctors to change their attitude. Is that so or not? Um, more so in other countries than the U.S., believe it or not. I mean, Europe, we all think that right now they're way ahead of us with cannabis and even in Israel where they do a lot of research, their clinical cannabis is a very small program at this point. Right. Ultimately, it's going to be a very big program, and what some countries are doing, which makes all the sense in the world, is to put the medical cannabis that's in a container with capsules or dose sprays in their pharmacies, because they have socialized medicine anyway, yeah. and then have coffee, you know, coffee, coffee shops for, for smoking. And I, I think that's the way the world should divide this up and just see it as very different. Hmm. Where's the United States going with regard to medical um, marijuana in the next, where do you see it going in the next five to 10 years? Well, I see more states. I mean, we're well over, what, 35, 38 states have some form. Um, I, I think that's going to get closer and closer to 50. And I don't know how the feds are going to change the scheduling because they have to have something very different than what the, let's call it the organic cannabis market that I'm a part of. So, and then they don't want their cannabis medicines that are from GW Pharma. I mean, a great, good company. It's a very good company. Um, but they don't want their medicine to smell like cannabis. Yeah. They don't want to have even a drop of THC in it. So they're stripping out everything else and you've got CBD or you have THC and those, to me, it looks like they're going to be Schedule 3, and they'll leave the whole plant as Schedule 1, so they have control of it. Is, um, so it is, even if it's not as powerful, is, is just smoking a joint at, in some way um, medically healthy for, or medically good for you? Well, I think a lot of people um, get a lot of benefits from smoking. But the people get benefits from smoking. Either they're smoking and they just enjoy the feeling, they enjoy the habit, the break, like having a drink, but this is sure. better for them. Um, and, yeah, there are people who use it to help with falling asleep. But when you start getting with pain issues, um, certainly seizure issues, cancer issues, you know, diabetes, and it's on and on and on, um, multiple sclerosis, myasthenia gravis, I mean, there's a lot of things we treat. I don't know how to treat those smoking because there are certain dosages of different cannabinoids that we found to be useful, um, then some people, I mean, if they're able to smoke and they like smoking and it works for them, I'm the last person to disagree. Yeah. I mean, if, well, more people, first of all, just don't want to get stoned or smoke, so they need to know what they're taking. Yeah. And, uh, it's interesting that my capsules, I take um, oil in a capsule form. That there's no no marijuana odor whatsoever, or there doesn't appear to me to my nose anyway. It's um, fairly neutral smell. 
Well, if you open up the capsule and smell it, it'll it'll have that herbal smell to it. But yeah, it's it's subtle. But if you if you open up a capsule with hemp CBD, um, I mean, it's a very different smell. Yeah, because I I've just got off being overseas for um, a few weeks and went to a number of countries with sniffer dogs everywhere and uh, just had it in my luggage and nothing. No, you know, even the sniffer dogs didn't pick it up. I don't think there's so many drug dogs anymore. I think there's bomb dogs. I mean, oh, they're bomb dogs. <laughs> imagine with all the trouble TSA is in, they make a big announcement. They found a joint, you know, they found <laughs> a joint. Do, does anybody really want that to happen? Do we really want it then involve? I realize there's still some places in this country where that happens, but do we really want resources going to that joint? It's ridiculous. Oh. I agree. Um, yeah. So, are all marijuana plants? You know, we we hear about these acres of marijuana that are growing everywhere. Can all can all of those plants be used to create oils that? Are of some benefit, or is there only certain strains that um, that are effective? I think um, we're just getting started, and this one of the secrets to the future is better extraction, more complete extraction, and more variety and strains. I mean, we may not know at this point what a new strain might do, but it's going to be different. I mean, it's just no question it'll be have some different effects. Right. So, and it's not just the strain. It's you know, have you heated it or using it raw, um, a, lot, a lot of variables. When you're growing the plants, if you let them flower in the, in, under lights for an extra week or 10 days, you get different terpene profiles, you'll have a different effect. So oh. just how long you um, spend flowering the plant will make a difference. So it needs a lot more research is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. It's, okay. Can, can you get addicted to um, medical marijuana? Well, you know, when the plant comes out of the ground, it doesn't know whether it's going to be used medically or recreational. So can you get addicted to cannabis? The federal government for a number of years has published a list of the rates of addiction, cannabis, um, coffee, alcohol. Cannabis comes in around 5%. Um, coffee comes in at 20%. So, you know, it's – and I think a lot of this addiction – I mean, addiction to me is defined as not smoking once a day or once a week or several times a day, whatever. It's by what it's doing to your life. It's, it's making your life better. And people around you would say, well, we don't like to smell, but you know what? He's much better. Um, or if your life is in ruin, then, you, you know, then you've got a problem, like with any other drug. But the rate of addiction is very low, even according to our government. And withdrawal symptoms... I think are virtually non-existent. And when they often claim that these people couldn't sleep as well and they were more agitated for a couple of weeks, that's why they were using the stuff to begin with. So it's not that surprising that um, if, if we give up our cannabis that we feel worse. I must admit I wake up in the morning and I can't do without my coffee, but I don't go reaching for your pills. <laughs> so I guess I'm more addicted to coffee. <laughs> um is there a role for medical cannabis in the fight against overdoses and deaths from opioids? Oh, I think that got to be one of the main things we should be focusing on. I mean, first of all, try avoid a lot of the opiate. The, the, the one thing that's necessary to have an opiate addiction is an opiate prescription. So the less prescriptions of opiates that we can start with, the better. So for if it's post-op pain for two days, all right, narcotics, but people need to be switched then to something else and cannabis would be a fine thing to try. Right. Also with withdrawal, when I see patients, whether they're cancer patients that are using a lot of narcotics and they have real pain, um, but they still get addicted and they still have withdrawal symptoms. And those are pretty much eliminated. If you have a, usually like a one-to-one -one CBD THC, um, withdrawal symptoms from narcotics is much, much easier. So that's not adequate, but it's a start. Do um, Does medical marijuana take 
a while to um, assimilate into your system and therefore a while for it to have effect? Or is it, you know, most of these pills that the doctors force on you um, pretty much have an effect immediately? I'm not necessarily saying always good, but is, is medical marijuana something that works fairly quickly or does it take a period of time or how does so? Both, both. I mean, there, for anxiety, the the effects of using whole plant CBD come on pretty quickly, often within minutes, literally minutes. Um, for schizophrenic that you're treating with higher doses of CBD, those patients seem to take a couple of weeks. Right. And there are just patients with depression that get better very quickly and some that take three or four weeks. And I'm sure there's different mechanisms. Maybe we have to rely on serotonin enhancement for some of them. But, um, you know, in general, go, you know, start low and go slow, but not always so low. If somebody, you have to leave it up to the patient and their own, and assessing as a physician, the patient's fear of being stoned is a critical part of the visit right. because if they have no fear of it and they're in a tremendous amount of pain and they don't have to drive then you're in a position well let's go for it and you know to get this guy a little bit psychoactive but his pain's gone and he's giggling that's a better situation yeah. you might have the giggling side effect or little stony side effect but I don't get a lot of complaints about that it seems weird that you know doctors are prepared to describe um, pills that um, are addictive, and yet, and people will take those without any, without giving it a second thought. Yet they're worried about marijuana, medical marijuana being addictive. That seems to me to be pretty weird. Um, <coughs> so, for somebody out there who's using traditional medicine and and it's not working, or they're having negative side effects. How do they? How do they go about talking to you, and how do they get to learn more? And how do we? How do we build your business so that you can have the same effect on other people that you're having on me? Well, um, first checking out my website, greenbridgemed.com. Type in Alan Franklin, you'll find my website. I've got um, a number of years of blogs there, right? Um, and calling my office for if you're local to come in for a visit or a phone educational consult. Oh, we do a lot of those. Or Skype. Okay, terrific. Alan, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. That was That's really interesting because I think um, medical marijuana is something that I, I didn't know much about. My wife put me onto it. Um, and, you know, she who must be obeyed is usually right. And... Uh, I'm, I'm really pleased that I met you and I'm really pleased we came in for that consult. Now, if you're listening to this and you have some concerns about an illness that you've got or the medicines that you're taking, go and talk to Alan and you go to Greenbridge, G-R-E-E-N, Bridge, B-R-I-D-G-E, med, M-E-D, dot com. You'll be really pleased that you did. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're pleased to be the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week we're... Broadcasting again from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where entertainment meets technology. You know, it's Los Angeles in December. It's winter. And the temperature today was 84 degrees Fahrenheit, or if you're from Australia or somewhere else like that, 29 degrees Celsius in winter, in December. Not bad, huh? Beautiful weather. Now, over the years of working with startups to develop their businesses, 
I found the prevailing concern of 99% of them is that they're scared of other people even getting wind of their idea. They won't disclose their business idea to anyone and some are even too paranoid to send emails in case they get hacked. I've got a client like that at the moment. I always advise clients, you know, of course, don't put your idea up on the website until you're ready to launch. But so many are um, afraid that their copycats are going to be better financed and maybe able to develop faster than they can and that all their work will be for naught. All businesses need to realize that having someone copy your idea or your product is pretty much inevitable. When they can't innovate, they copy. Sometimes we assume that established competitors are focused on X and we're focused on Y, but as growth becomes harder to come by and they struggle to increase revenue, copying your idea is the easiest way and it's always a possibility. When a new business idea is executed successfully, other businesses will imitate. That's natural. In the traditional business market, there are thousands of businesses doing exactly the same thing and making a good living off it. I often say, there's a hell of a lot of people making hamburgers, but it's McDonald's that are on every second corner. And their, and their hamburgers aren't as good as 90% of the other hamburgers out there. So there's nothing to be scared of. As the saying goes, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Any good company needs direct competitors. Copycats validate your startup's business. Their, existence, their mere existence indicates that there's money in the market that you're trying to capture and is worth fighting for. That is why VCs always ask, who are your competitors? If you have no competitors, smart people will say, mm, I wonder if you've got the right product market fit. I wonder if that business is sustainable. If it's that good a business, there'd be other people in it. Other players copying your startup idea and marketing it to generate a buzz around their product in the marketplace, that actually expands the market. That expands your market. And they'll reach out to customers you may not have thought of. And they'll help you to identify new potential customers. They will end up energizing the market and boosting awareness about the problem that your product's trying to solve. So your copycat becomes an extension of your marketing efforts, and it's for free. Any founder worth their salt will tell you that when you have others replicating your efforts, you know that your product will resonate with a wide audience. Direct competition is war, but it does provide validity to your argument. It creates awareness and removes the blind spots. You know, the copycats will often make the same mistakes that you did, and they'll die, or they'll make new ones that you ought to learn from. Follow every move they make. These moves will give you new ideas, challenge your assumptions, and point to the shortcomings of your own product. Copycats will bring you insights into the market. Existing customers, partners, and other potential customers. Embrace them, learn from them, because they don't hurt your business, they actually help you grow. Don't let them steal your customers. Don't let them steal any of your team. And investors might wanna know, what if a competitor starts doing what you do? Why are you best positioned to execute this idea? Copying a product is the biggest compliment another founder can give you. Enjoy the flattery, then continue to revolutionize. Now, you've got to create barriers to entry. You've got to get copyrights and patents. You know, you've got to patent key components of your software or whatever your product is. Try and sign exclusives with key partners. Buy domains and all the domains around you to protect your trademark. Keep innovating, invest in R&D, keep building proprietary stuff that can not easily be copied. Talk to your existing customers more and understand their pain points. Make sure that you're working hard to solve the problems that they have and let them know that. 
research the competitor's key strengths and weaknesses and try and hit them where it hurts and take action. Be observant. Be flexible. Be aggressive. Be smart and fight back. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. It's better to aim for the stars and miss than aim for the gutter and succeed. Now, if you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing you can be if you think a little bit differently. Now, I hope that you have a absolutely sensational week. And I hope you can join me here again next Tuesday while I'll, when I'll again be broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in California. In the meanwhile, please continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.